every Sun or really every Sunday or Monday so that everyone has the whole week to pray for them uh, if perchance it's something that is more of a private nature you can just check that little box or circle at the top and it will just uh, come to me so anyway just take a let's take a moment to fill those out and then we will collect them and uh, get into our message today Right. Well, let's pray, and we will uh, get into our message today. So, Father, I, I just simply ask that this, uh, that this message would just touch hearts and minds. I, I would pray as well that you would give people the ears to hear, the heart to receive. Uh, Lord, this is uh, this kind of a message can sometimes be difficult to hear, and so. I just pray uh, that you would open ears, uh, especially to uh, this teaching that is so counter to what we would normally want to do in these types of situations. So, Father, just pray your blessing on it. Uh, I pray your blessing on me that you would uh, move me out of the way and let only your words come through. So I give you thanks for, uh, for that and just ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was an article in uh, Leadership Journal, and it was written by John Ortberg. And in the article, he discussed how adverse situations are necessary for our spiritual growth. Um, and so he writes the following. Psychologist Jonathan Haidt had a hypothetical exercise. Imagine that you have a child, and for five minutes, you're given a script of what will be that child's life. You get an eraser. You can edit it. You can take out whatever you want. And so you read that your child will have a learning disability in grade school. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be a challenge for yours. 
In high school, your child will have this great circle of friends. One of them will be killed in an automobile accident. After high school, this child will actually get into the college of their choice. But while there, there will be uh, another auto accident, and this child will lose a leg and go through a very difficult depression as a result of that. A few years later, your child will get a great job and then lose that job in an economic downturn. Your child will get married, but then go through the grief of separation. You get this script of your child's life for five minutes to edit it. What would you erase? Wouldn't you want to take out all the stuff that causes them pain? Ortberg continues, I am part of a generation of adults called helicopter parents because we're constantly trying to swoop into our kids' educational life, relational life, sports life, etc., to make sure no one is mistreating them, no one is disappointing them. We want them to experience one unobstructed success after another. I love this story that he tells. One Halloween, a mom came to our door to trick or treat. Why didn't she send her kid? Well, the weather's a little bad, she said, so she was driving him so he didn't have to walk in the mist. But why not send him to the door? Well, he'd fallen asleep in the car, she said, so she didn't want to have to wake him up. Ortberg said he felt like saying, well, why don't you just eat all his candy and get his stomach ache for him, too? <laughs> then he can be completely protected. If you could wave a wand, if you could erase every failure, every setback, suffering and pain, are you sure it would be a good idea to do so? Would it cause your child to grow up to be a better, stronger, more generous person? Is it possible that in some way people actually need adversity, setbacks, maybe even something like trauma? to reach the fullest level of their development and growth? Well, in answer to that question, I believe James, the author of the book of James, would unequivocally answer yes. The epistle or the letter of James, which we're going to begin looking at today, is widely revered because it contains some of the most practical theology in all of the gospel. And in writing this letter, James sort of lays out for his readers this very intricate picture of what it means to be a mature Christian. Specifically, as Chip mentioned just a few minutes ago, one who should be a doer of the word and not just a hearer of the word, and one who demonstrates their faith through action. Okay? So, if you would like to follow along in uh, a Bible whether online or um, hardback. It's James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, but we will also uh, show you the verses up on the screen. So we're going to dig in, start with verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Well, this verse identifies the authors and the readers, but really doesn't give us enough information to, to understand exactly who they are. Um, now, James is a form of the Old Testament name Jacob, okay? And there were several men that are mentioned in the New Testament that had that name. 
probably the most prominent of the James that we read about uh, was James the son of Zebedee and the brother of John. Okay? He was one of the fishermen that was called by Jesus uh, to follow him and to become his disciples. Uh, James was, as far as we know, the very first of the disciples to give his life for, for Christ, for the cause of Jesus. He was killed by Herod in AD uh, 44. And so because of that, most scholars believe that he could not have been the James that wrote this letter because they believe the letter is dated some years later. Five could be even more than that. But sometimes around, sometime around 50 AD is when they date this letter. And so that was six years after uh, James, the son of Zebedee, had died. Then there was also James, the son of Alphaeus. He was another of the disciples, but we really don't know a whole lot about him. Um, Matthew, coincidentally, is also identified as a son of Alphaeus, and so some people conjecture that they may have been brothers, but we really have no way to know that, other than the fact that they both are identified um, as the son of Alphaeus. And there is no indication anywhere in scripture that he would have been the author of this letter. So he's usually ruled out. Then we have an even more obscure James. This is James, the father of Judas, the disciple. Now, before you start to question this, there actually were two disciples named Judas. There was Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, okay? And so, uh, probably they called him the son of James simply to distinguish him from the other Judas who was, uh, was known by the town that he was from. Um, and again, there's no indication that this James wrote this letter either. And so finally, we have James, the half-brother of Jesus. The, now, the fact that Jesus had half-brothers and sisters is stated in both Matthew and Mark, uh, and we do know that one of his brothers was named James. And this particular James, Jesus' brother, was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so it's very likely that it was this James who authored this letter. And that's what, in general, scholars believe, that uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, was the author of the letter of James. It's interesting because the word, the Greek word doulos, which is what James refers him to himself as, and it's usually translated as slave or servant in the ESV. Uh, could be translated as bondservant in some translations. However you translate it, what it really means is that this person is uh, taking a position of complete obedience, uh, of utter humility and unshakable loyalty to the person that they are uh, saying that they're a slave or servant of. So interesting that the half-brother of Jesus uses this phrase to describe himself. Um, now, what about the readers? Well, it, it kind of looks like he's addressing this to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, which would be uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, but they really didn't exist any longer at this point. Um, there had been a deportation of the 10 northern tribes, and so it effectively destroyed their identity. So in other words, they, you know, there may have been people who were part of those tribes, but they were scattered all over the place. Um, really, the only thing left in that part of Israel were the Samaritans. And um, they were a mixed race, and as you may know, were despised by the Jews. The, the term dispersion has a sort of a special meaning in Scripture. Um, it was used to, kind of in a special way, to talk, to refer to the people of God who had been scattered, you know, 
because of these various uh, nations that would come in and, and sort of take over uh, Israel. Um, but at this point, really, the dispersion would mean worldwide. It wasn't just a local thing any longer. And so really, by the time this letter was written, the 12 tribes had sort of shifted in their meaning and had come to describe sort of the regathered and renewed Israel that God was going to create in the last days, made possible by Jesus the Messiah. And so really, Christians sort of were under this covering of the 12 tribes at that point. And then James uses a very typical Greek expression for greeting that just really conveys a sense of joy and happiness. So he's, uh, that's the, the, the way that he is greeting the folks that are going to read this letter. All right, next couple of verses. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is a pretty remarkable command. Saying that we're supposed to choose joy in situations where joy would probably be the last thing we would ever think about. You know, certain circumstances typically make us angry, uh, and then we want to blame God for, for whatever has happened. And James is directing us to take an, a healthier alternative, which is joy. See, most people are happy if they can escape a trial, if they can find an out in some way. Uh, but James just says, wait, no, don't do that. Just consider it pure joy when you have these things. I know, funny, right? So what, why is this, a this attitude so important? Well, you see, we are not really, well, we are God's scattered people. What we're not is God's sheltered people. All right? And so we're going to experience trials. Scripture's pretty clear on that. Right? There isn't, it doesn't le really leave any doubt about the fact that trials are going to come into our lives, big and small. Now, some of them come simply because we're human. We get sick, we get in an accident, we have disappointments, even tragedies occur. And other trials come to us because we're Christians, and Satan's not happy with that. And so what we end up with, we've got Satan fighting us, the world opposing us, and then all of these other things, which essentially makes life a battle. And Scripture's not unclear about that either, right? But what James is saying is that even though we have all of these different kinds of trials, believers can triumph over them. Now, choosing an attitude of joy does not mean that you should go out and seek out trials, right? And the other side of this is you're not supposed to pretend you're enjoying it. Okay, that's not what this is saying. Gosh, you know, I love this disease that I have. It is so great. It's not at all what this is trying to say. We aren't going to pretend that a trial is pleasant. They're, they cause pain, they cause difficulty, they, in some cases they cause suffering. But we should look at trials as an occasion for joy because of their potential for producing something good in us. See, this calls for us to consciously develop this positive attitude towards trials, which is, again, contrary to our normal response. 
But see, now, now we're starting to see there's a reason for adopting this attitude of joy because we understand, okay, this is going to make me better, ultimately. Now, verse 3 explains how we can show pure joy when we face trials, and it's because God intends for the testing of our faith to produce perseverance, or in this case, the text uses the term steadfastness, really the same word. And so without these trials, some of our character would remain undeveloped. God also can use trials to purge and to remove defects from what is an immature faith. I thought it was interesting that the Greek word that's translated as testing actually means approved after testing. See, a lot of times we tend to think of testing as a way to prove what we don't know or what we don't have. Testing really ought to be seen as a positive opportunity to prove what it is we've learned. The person that's being tested should become stronger and purer through the testing. See, in this case, the trials do not determine whether or not believers have faith. The trials strengthen believers by adding perseverance to the faith that is already present. Perseverance suggests endurance or stamina, and endurance is faith stretched out. It doesn't really refer just to the ability to kind of hold back discouraging results or a bad temper or remorseful self-pity. It's supposed to include staying power. The kind of staying power believers can have because they trust God. And so when our faith is tested, it makes us spiritually tough and rugged in a sense. And what James is essentially telling believers uh, is that we're supposed to be patient. Don't panic. Don't overreact. Don't turn a problem into a crisis. See, I was was reading this, and I mean, you see this thing everywhere, but it made me think of this sign. Keep calm and carry on. See, because what seems to be the case now is people's first response is freak out and carry a grudge. Right? We don't keep calm. We don't just kind of carry on, which is really essentially what James is suggesting here. Patience is one of the great themes of the entire letter of James. He mentions it again in chapter 5. And James says you should let patience have its complete effect, which is to kind of work through your system. And I really liked this thought. Imagine that your life is like a house. Faith is what happens when you look out the window, away from yourself, to the God who is so much greater than you. And then patience is what happens inside the house when you do that. And I thought that was so fitting because even if you were to imagine the biggest house on earth, its size pales by comparison to the rest of the world, to the rest of the universe, right? And so 
just kind of imagining things like that um, helps us to remember just how great God is. All right, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without report reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. See, with wisdom, a Christian can understand how their trials merge into God's plan for their lives. But how do we get this wisdom? (laughs) You just ask for it. Everybody wants to make it a whole lot harder than that. But what James is saying is, you ask God. And there's, I think, four things that could encourage us to ask God for wisdom. First of all, we understand that God is a giving God. He will give to those who ask from him. It's just a natural response. Second, God gives generously to everybody. He doesn't have any kind of a favorite recipient of his gifts. He gives to all classes, all races, all types of people. Third, and this, was the, this is the one that I think trips up a lot of people. God gives without finding fault. God does not give in such a way as to humiliate us. He doesn't chastise us for our failures or hold our own unworthiness against us. He's always ready to add new blessings on top of the old ones without finding any fault in us for our shortcomings. He knows they're there. But that doesn't stop him from giving the things that we ask for. And finally, God promises to answer those who come seeking wisdom. (coughs) If you're asking according to his will, you're almost guaranteed to receive an answer. When you pray according to scripture, I would, if you want to later, look up 1 John 5, 14 and 15. All of this to say that such wisdom sort of assures us that God hasn't forsaken us. His gifts of wisdom allow us to understand how God is involved in life's everyday events. And then verses 6 and 7 sort of deal with this need to have faith. So whoever asks God for wisdom has got to believe and not doubt. Faith really is a complete commitment to God in trusting obedience. See, a a doubting person is really spiritually unstable. Just exactly like what James says, like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed about. Our prayers for wisdom, in this case, can't alternate between faith and unbelief and faith and unbelief, and faith and unbelief. You've got to endure in the confidence that God will answer our request according to his will. Right? That's the important thing to remember. Second, doubters should not even imagine that God will answer their prayers. 
It's faith that opens the door to God's limitless treasury of wisdom. Unbelief pretty much receives a rejection slip. Request denied due to insufficient faith. And verse 8 provides an additional description of the spiritual makeup of a doubter. Double-minded, unstable in all he does. See, doubters have no stamina in their commitment to God. One moment they're inclined to obedience, and then another moment they just go about their own business with no thought given to God. And so failure to endure with faith in prayer is basically an indicator of that person's general character. But we always ask this question, well, so how do I know that God will give it to me? Well, I think the problem there is that we project on God the fearful, um, petty, or even spiteful character that we meet so often in real life. Sometimes even when we look in the mirror. Learning who God really is and what he's truly like and reminding ourselves of it regularly is the, is the key to it all. And so without that, you're, you're going to end up being double-minded. You're going to go this way, that way, back the other way. If you can have that kind of singularity of faith, you're going to have a settled character. So, What's the big idea of all this? Well, I think simply that James is telling us that we can be joyful in the midst of trials. We can be joyful in the midst of trials. Well, that's kind of a tall order. How do we do that? How can we be joyful in the midst of trials? Well, he's basically told us, so let's kind of just run through those again. I think, first of all, you have to embrace trials. As I said, it's certainly not intuitive that any kind of trial or problem or whatever is going to bring about joy. And I think, once again, that's because we tend to confuse joy and happiness. Right? Happiness is a surface feeling based on temporal conditions. So I go and I buy something new and that makes me happy for a while and then the happiness wears off and I'm depressed again so I go buy something else new and on and on and on it goes. Right? We're never satisfied. The stuff never, never brings about joy. Joy is this deep inner satisfaction that's based on eternal promises. And so James is telling us to look at trials through the lens of joy, not the lens of happiness. And so if we do that, then these trials can become the means by which we become mature and complete, not lacking anything, in James' own words. Once again, we've got to see the trial as an opportunity to respond to the transforming work of God, knowing that um, our faith is only going to grow stronger as a result of doing that. And I think part of it, too, is just is to view um, trials as a testing of your faith. See, God's word never teaches us that trouble in life is some sort of an automatic sign that God is disappointed with us. You know, oh, God's not happy with me. It's why, he, you know, I, I broke up with my significant other or, 
I had a car accident or I lost my job or on and on and on. You know, we, we kind of think that sometimes. Maybe if we looked at it by the fact that God recognizes our faith and has a confidence in our commitment to him that he understands that we can withstand the trial. And so for that reason, as a believer, when we're faced with a trial like that, our whole attitude and demeanor ought to be different. Because it's based not on our happiness of the si with the situation, but on our confidence of what God is doing through it. And what is going to be the result in us when we go through it. Now, knowing all these things about the positive aspects of trials, consider how many times we're tempted to just take the easy road and walk away from a difficult situation. You know, our, a romantic relationship hits rough waters, and so we just withdraw. Our boss is giving us a hard time at work, so, well, let's just look for a new job. We don't get along well with our neighbors, so we start praying that they'll move. <laughs> our extended family gets on our nerves while we're on vacation, so we just go book a room somewhere else <laughs> to get away from them. Or we're feeling depressed and we turn to food or some other type of, you know, alcohol, drugs, whatever, as a way to uh, just ignore the problems. They'll go away for a little while. And so... In, you know, both in these big trials and in the small ones, we can always be tempted to insulate ourselves and figure out some way to escape from the struggle. It might relieve some of the pain temporarily, but it's certainly not going to teach us to persevere. And it's only if we choose to persevere through struggles that we're actually going to grow. If we insulate, then we're never going to experience the growth that God would have for all of us. So point number one, embrace trials. Point two, seek wisdom. And again, why is this verse it confused me for a long time when I would read this passage. I thought, well, it seems like an odd transition where he's talking about trials and all of a sudden it just switches to, you know, if you don't have wisdom, ask God. Seek wisdom from God. I'm thinking, well, Why? Well, I think for several reasons. Wisdom given by God gives us the spiritual capacity to see and evaluate life from God's point of view. Which is something that we lack a good portion of the time. I think trials are often the byproduct of the need there's some sort of a difficult decision that is at the root of, of a lot of trials. And wisdom is going to help you make a good choice and do what's right according to God's standards and purposes. And so you develop that kind of wisdom by basing your life on what God's revealed in his word and by following the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And it's as easy as just coming to God and asking for it in faith. But the catch for most of us is 
We have to fight off the human tendency to do everything else but ask God for help. Right? The wisdom that we need is not available on HGTV. It's not on YouTube. And you're not going to find it by asking Siri or Alexa. It's a wisdom of divine origin. And it's readily available to all who would ask. Think for a moment about um, passenger jet pilots. Okay? These are incredibly capable people. They bear a tremendous responsibility every time they take that plane in the air loaded with you and I and our loved ones and everybody else. Hundreds of people from one place to another, constantly, right? These folks have got to have a tremendous amount of experience before they're even allowed to touch a commercial airliner. So, in some cases, we could say they're, you know, they're, they're just extremely capable in, in, at what they do. Yet, even the most gifted pilot still has to seek the wisdom and guidance of the control tower when it's time to land the plane. If they attempted to land the plane without listening to what the control tower is telling them, the results very often could be catastrophic. And so how often do we try to navigate our way through life without asking for the divine wisdom that is readily available as a means to help us figure out what it is that we're to do? And so seeking wisdom is point number two. And then three, exercise faith. See, exercising your faith is the exact opposite of being double-minded. To be double-minded and unstable is to trust God and, yet claim, and, and claim to be a believer and yet be filled with doubt and keep all your other options open just in case God doesn't prove to be dependable. Right? See, a double-minded person is like trying to, to be allied on both sides of a war. You're just a walking contradiction. Uh, Augustine, or Augustine, who is one of the, the great fathers of the church, uh, especially of the Catholic tradition, actually confessed to this kind of thinking in one of his earliest prayers. What he asks, he said, O oh Lord, grant me purity, but not yet. <laughs> <laughs> See, we can, we can live a single-minded life of trust in God where every experience is another step in the process of becoming a mature and complete person. Now, does that mean that a single-minded person will never doubt? No, not at all. And in fact, doubts may be part of the trial that you're going through. But, hopefully these doubts fall into the category of, this, of the man who stood before Jesus and said, I do believe, help me with my unbelief. See, he was willing to fess up to the fact that he didn't know it all. He had some faith, but he wanted more. And God honored that prayer. See, single-minded persons don't dwell on whether or not they can find a shred of doubt in themselves. 
Rather, they concentrate on a wholehearted commitment to God. Or, you can live a double-minded life where every experience is approached with doubt and a lack of trust. Really, you just kind of refuse to stop doubting. And I think the decision comes down to something that we've talked about multiple times over the years, and that is, what's your view of God? Do you see God like a loving father who wants to make sure you have everything you need? Or do you see God more like a loan shark who's willing to give you what you want, but at 50% interest? Or like a boss who is only happy if you do all your assignments exactly like he wants them done. Or like a judge to whom you have to prove that you're innocent in order to receive a favorable response from. See, when we believe that he's not only able to help, but also more than willing to help, then we're going to come forward in faith. So here's some things today you can think about just as you go into the week ahead, what we like to call faith in action. If there's a trial that you're experiencing right now, decide to embrace it rather than complain about it. Remember how we've talked about the power of negative words. And so if you chose to embrace that trial as a means of giving you increased growth in spiritual maturity, you're going to look at it a whole lot differently. So try embracing instead of complaining. Number two, if there's a problem in your life that you can't seem to solve, then seek God for wisdom for it. Ask God for help. like you ladies are always telling us guys to ask for directions. <laughs> and sometimes that's true. But we all, men and women, need to ask for directions sometimes. And so that's something that you can do. It's something tangible that you can do. And then finally, don't just have faith exercise your faith right it's easy to have faith right even faith uh, as a mustard seed which is a tiny tiny bit of faith you can have that what are you going to do about it goes back to what James was talking about faith without works is what dead right just as a, a way to kind of encourage you a little bit. I want to conclude with the story. So I've been reading um, this book by Mark Batterson um, and I read a story yesterday morning about a man that he was uh, familiar with who was sort of a modern day Brother Lawrence. And if you're not familiar with Brother Lawrence, he wrote a little tiny book called Practicing the Presence of God. And Brother Lawrence was a cook in a monastery. And his goal was to try and be aware of the presence of God all the time. And in everything he did, 
even doing the menial duties that are required of somebody when you, you work in a kitchen in the monastery. So this man was trying to do something similar, and he had arrived at this way of approaching life that he would, he called it shooting a prayer at people that he encountered, that he would try to do that at least once a minute, or something along those lines. And he didn't actually put his finger and point the trigger and blow the smoke off the barrel. Um, but he would just do this mentally. And he, he said that sometimes people would just walk past and, and they would pay no attention to him. But he was amazed at the number of times he did this, people would actually turn around and smile at him for no apparent reason, right? Okay, so I've read this, and I'm thinking, well, that's kind of interesting. So last night after dinner, Sally and I decided that we wanted some ice cream. So we got in the car, and we drove to Dairy Queen in Ashland. We were the second car in line. There was a car at the window. We ordered and pulled around. <laughs> and to this, I have no idea what these people ordered. But we sat there, and we sat there, and we sat there. And there's like, t I can at least see two more cars behind ours. I have no idea if there were more than that because I couldn't see around the building. But I'm getting hotter by the minute. And I, it's everything I can do not to just lay on the horn, you know, that kind of a thing. So I'm thinking, okay, hmm, this is sort of a trial, isn't it? Maybe, maybe I should pray. So, I, I prayed for the people in front of us that whatever they'd ordered would be given to them really soon, but that God would bless them. And I prayed for the people in the restaurant because I figured, okay, they're, you know, there's, maybe they're slammed. I don't know who was in there or whatever. So I, I prayed for the people in the restaurant. So finally, this other car gets everything that they'd ordered and they pull away and we pull up. And in my mind, I guess I hadn't, they, either they didn't say how much it was going to be, but I thought, well, it'll probably be less than five bucks. So I pull a five out of my wallet, and I hand the guy a five just as he's telling me it's going to be five fifty-four. And I thought, oh, okay. And as I go back, he goes, oh, you know, never mind. You guys had to wait. Just forget. We'll just, that'll be on us. So was that the result of the prayer that I prayed? Yeah. I tend to think it was. So understand that, and did I learn a lesson <laughs> through all of that? I sure did. You know, I could have, I could have honked my horn and I may have felt better, you know, for a second or two. But, you know, who knows that the guy at the Dairy Queen would have spit in my ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to disparage Dairy Queen workers, but they get upset, you know. Uh, or at least given me half as much as what I'd ordered for. <laughs> and, of course, it would have made the people in front of me angry, too. <coughs> right? And, and, and no one really would have won in that situation. Everybody leaves feeling worse off than they were. Um, whereas, that's, 
this way. Hopefully the folks in the car in front of me had a wonderful evening, which is what I prayed for them for. And I ended up, you know, saving a whole 54 cents. <laughs> but you know what? It, it, the amount really didn't even matter. It was just simply the fact that that prayer had an immediate impact, an immediate result, just like this guy was talking about with the folks that would turn around and look at him when he's just praying the silent prayer of blessing upon them. So put your faith in action this week. That's really the reason I tell that story is, um, is just to encourage you to do some of these things. You know, it, we, I think we mentioned it last week. You can, you can sit here and you can listen to this stuff that I'm talking about. You can read God's word. But if that's all that you ever do with it, it's not doing you a bit of good. If you're never actually taking the step to put your faith into action, to actually practice what God is trying to tell you, or what I'm trying to help you understand that God is trying to tell you, then it really doesn't do you any good. You're nothing more than a person that really knows the Bible. We have too many people that really know the Bible and don't ever act on it. So don't be one of those people. I'd rather you know a little bit about the Bible and practice what you do know than, you know, to be able to quote whole passages of Scripture from memory but yet live a life that is totally devoid of God not saying you shouldn't memorize scripture it's it's a good idea it's nice to have that kind of thing at handy when you run into things to be able to recall that i'm just saying you need to practice what's there all right so we want to go into our kind of the third part of our service where we um we want to actually experience God. And so if there is something that you're struggling with, whether it's a prayer need, a decision that you're ha you need to make, um, whether you need to hear from God about something, we want to be able to, uh, to pray with you, to, to take this time to sort of seek God, just to let Him and His Holy Spirit come and do whatever uh, whatever they would choose to do. If you need to, uh, to take off, that's just fine. We just want to encourage you or invite you to stay. So I'm going to pray a, a blessing upon all of us, and then uh, you can either hang around, wait on the Holy Spirit, or go across the hall and have some more coffee and visit. So Lord God, I just I thank you, Father, for, for this, this counterintuitive word about being joyful in trials. Very little in life is going to be any harder than that. 
And yet we are so encouraged to do it because of all the positive benefits that result from it. So Father, give us the wherewithal. Increase our faith. Give us understanding of the reason for the trials. Even if we don't fully understand why we're going through it, we can at least take comfort in knowing that it's building us up on the inside. That you're preparing us for something greater. So Lord, I just thank you for your word that came through your servant James. Help us to put all the elements of it in practice this week. Bless each and every person gathered here today. in some way, I would really encourage you to stay rather than leave. I think the Lord would want us, wants us to pray for you. So Father God, just bless all of these, your people. I give you thanks for them. Give them a wonderful week until that we have the opportunity to be together once again. We give you thanks and praise in all things. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Give me faith to trust what you say. Then you're good and your love is great. I'm broken inside. I give you my life I need you To soften my heart Break me apart I need you To open Trust what you